This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Today, I'm joined by Jess Pelletier, Emergency Medicine Education Fellow at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. We're going to be talking about open globe injury, a rare but can't miss diagnosis in emergency medicine. Jess, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Britt. I'm excited to talk about this topic together. Like you, I'm interested in high acuity, low occurrence diseases, and open globe injury is definitely one of them. Let's dive right into it. Open globe injury is a full thickness injury to the layers of the eye. It can be caused by blunt, or sharp trauma. Jess, how common is this and why should it be on our radar for patients with a traumatic eye injury? Great question, Britt. The incidence of open globe injury is only two to six cases per 100,000 population and males ages 10 to 30 account for about 80% of cases. Open globe injury occurring in males is most commonly due to penetrating injury experienced at work while not wearing protective eyewear, but other common mechanisms of injury include motor vehicle accidents, fights, and sports. Recent eye surgery makes the integrity of the eye weaker and is a risk factor for open globe injury, as are connective tissue disorders due to weakness of the sclera. In children, injury is typically associated with eye laceration from a sharp object. The reason we should care about identifying open globe injury is that it's a vision-threatening diagnosis, and prognosis worsens if definitive care with antibiotics and surgery are delayed. Surgical intervention within 12 to 24 hours is associated with lower rates of endophthalmitis and improved vision. While outcomes can be poor if surgical intervention is delayed, up to 75% of appropriately treated patients can have vision measurable with a Snellen chart after open globe injury. Among all patients with open globe injury, approximately 9% of people ultimately have no light perception and 39% experience 20-40 vision or better in the affected eye. Definitely a high-risk disease. I think one of the major takeaways is that we need to consider open globe injury in a patient with sharp or blunt trauma to the eye, especially in work-related accidents in men. We're going to dive deeper into the epidemiology later, but it's pretty surprising how well many of these patients do with appropriate care. Jess, what's the actual definition of an open globe injury? Great question, Brett. Open globe injury refers to complete penetration of all layers of the eye wall that may lead to endophthalmitis and vision loss. Subcategories of open globe include laceration versus rupture. Laceration is subcategorized into penetration, meaning only an entry wound is present, perforation, so there are entry and exit wounds present, and intraocular foreign body, or IOFB. Mixed injury patterns do occur. Rupture, on the other hand, occurs via blunt trauma, usually at weak points such as the limbus, locations of prior surgery, optic nerve or rectus muscle insertions on the globe. 
Perforation, penetration, and IOFB all represent forms of sharp trauma due to lacerations of the globe. Extensive injury can be described using anatomical zones, and we'll include a figure in our blog post. Zone 1 extends from cornea to limbus, zone 2 from the limbus to 5 millimeters posterior to that, and zone 3 involves any area posterior to 5 millimeters behind the limbus. All right, open globe injury, a full thickness injury of the eye. It can be broken down into laceration or rupture, and there are subtypes of laceration. We can also use anatomical zones to describe the injury location. Jess, what's the pathophysiology that we have to know here? Well, the eye has three layers, including the cornea anteriorly, the sclera posterior to the limbus, the uvea, and the retina. There are three chambers, including the anterior chamber, posterior chamber, and the vitreous cavity. The anterior chamber consists of the space between the cornea and the anterior edge of the iris, and it contains aqueous humor. The posterior chamber extends from the posterior surface of the iris to the posterior edge of the ciliary body and the lens and is involved in production and circulation of aqueous humor. The vitreous chamber is the largest of the three chambers and extends from the ciliary body posteriorly to the back of the eye where the retina is located. It contains vitreous humor, which assists in supporting the posterior lens and maintaining the ocular shape. Any traumatic injury can result in open globe injury. Injuries to the anterior portion of the sclera are the most common because the sclera is thin anteriorly. In cases of blunt trauma, anterior to posterior force causes the globe to strike against the orbital wall, which increases intraocular pressure and leads to scleral tearing at points of weakness. Open globe injury associated with penetrating injuries involves the cornea in most cases, but about one-third of injuries will involve the sclera or limbus. An IOFB can be present in a globe laceration, and these are usually found in the vitreous cavity, followed by the anterior chamber, the retina, and the lens. With any violation of the protective wall of the eye, there's potential for extrusion of intraocular contents, especially with increases in intraocular pressure. There's also a significant risk of endophthalmitis following open globe injury, with rates ranging between 2 to 8%. But if an IOFB is present, up to 30% of patients with open globe injury can experience endophthalmitis. Other factors associated with infection include presenting visual acuity, open globe laceration, injury with organic material, lens disruption, and delayed operative care. The final complication in those who aren't appropriately treated includes complete vision loss. Great review of the eye anatomy and the pathophysiology. Most open globe injuries involve the cornea, but an injury to the limbus or the sclera could also occur. Endophthalmitis is a serious risk, especially when there's involvement of vegetable matter or an intraocular foreign body. Now, Jess, how do these patients present? So patients with open globe injury will present with eye pain and typically decreased visual acuity. Emergency clinicians should be suspicious for open globe injury, even without that classic story, if there are injuries to the adnexa, so the stuff around the eyeball, such as lacerations, 
orbital floor fracture, or retrobulbar hemorrhage, since about 25% of open globe injury patients have injuries to the orbit or adnexa. Several historical factors are suggestive of open globe injury. Based on the retrospective data we have, the most common mechanisms of open globe injury from highest to lowest frequency include striking against an object or person, cutting or piercing, accidental entry of a foreign body, falls, assaults, motor vehicle collision, firearms, and machinery. The most common mechanisms causing an intraocular foreign body include working with metal, followed by gardening and construction. For penetrating injuries, the most common mechanisms after working with metal are assault, construction, working with glass or porcelain, chopping wood, gardening, being pecked by a bird, interestingly, broken kitchen items or glass, or being stabbed with a writing implement. While the level of detail collected regarding mechanism of injury varies between each of these studies, and there's some variation in the causes of open globe injury by geographic area, work-related injuries are universally the most common cause of open globe injury. Patients presenting with eye pain or vision changes after a work-related accident or one of the traumatic mechanisms we just described should raise concern for open globe injury. Oh man, being pecked by a bird or being stabbed with a writing implement, not a great day there. But like you said, the right injury pattern plus eye pain, vision loss, or concerning related injuries should make us think about an open globe injury. What should our exam include? Well, we need to obviously stabilize life-threatening injuries first, but if the patient has a suspected open globe injury, they need to undergo a full eye examination. We need to start with visual acuity, first with the Snellen chart. If they can't see that, you should check for ability to count fingers, followed by detection of hand motion and then light perception. When we examine the pupils, we need to examine for abnormal contour or a relative APD, which may or may not be present in open globe injury. If they do have an APD, this suggests concomitant injury to the optic nerve and a worse prognosis. Next, we need to check confrontational visual fields and extraocular movements. Open globe injury can be associated with orbital floor fractures and muscle entrapment of the orbital muscles, leading to abnormal extraocular movements. Gross examination should be performed with a pen light or slit lamp. Penetrating or perforating injuries can actually be subtle, so evidence of uveal prolapse may or may not be present. Lobe rupture is typically more obvious with extruded orbital contents like vitreous iris or lens. The classic presentation for open globe injury involves a teardrop-shaped or peaked pupil, which points toward the site of injury. Hyphema or 360-degree subconjunctival hemorrhage can be associated with open globe injury as well. Slit lamp examination may demonstrate a shallow anterior chamber for anterior open globe injury and a deep anterior chamber if the injury is at the back of the eye. If physical exam isn't diagnostic of open globe injury up to this point, then we should check for a positive Seidel test. We start by applying topical anesthetic drop to the affected eye, followed by application of a moistened fluorescein strip to the area with the suspected leak. We should also apply fluorescein to the superior conjunctiva, allowing the dye to flow down the cornea. 
the emergency clinician will see visible fluorescein flow under Wood's lamp or cobalt blue light, and that would seal the diagnosis of open globe injury. The Seidel test doesn't need to be performed if there's obvious globe rupture. Literature suggests that emergency clinicians should not evaluate ocular pressure in cases of suspected open globe injury, since this could lead to orbital content extrusion, which sounds terrible. However, there are no case reports or peer-reviewed data documenting extrusion of ocular contents from ocular pressure evaluation in the ED setting. One study evaluating those with scleral rupture versus those without found 100% sensitivity and 98.5% specificity for open globe injury if ocular pressure was less than 5 millimeters of mercury in combination with no light perception, abnormal anterior chamber depth, and inability to view the fundus. So if an open globe injury is not initially suspected and ocular pressure is evaluated, it will most likely be low, less than 10 millimeters of mercury, which should raise concern for a scleral injury. Great breakdown of the exam. And there's something that you said that I really liked. We often refer to that rivulet of fluid on fluorescein staining as a Seidel sign, but that means something completely different to our ophthalmology colleagues. The correct term, like you stated, is a positive Seidel test. Based on what you've told me, we can potentially make this diagnosis using a combination of the history, the exam, but we do need to avoid putting pressure on the eye if we can. If we're concerned, get ophthalmology on board. Jess, where does imaging fit into all of this? That brings up a great question, Britt. Uh, This actually just came up a week or two ago uh, with a, a colleague who mentioned ruling out open globe injury with a CT but I don't think we can quite do that. CT findings suggestive of open globe injury include intraocular foreign body, but this is only reliable for radio-opaque objects. Intraocular air, volume loss in the eye, decreased depth of the anterior chamber, globe deformity, displaced lens, and irregular scleral contour. CT is more reliable than other imaging modalities for the identification of intraocular foreign body, and has the additional benefit of ruling out concomitant orbital floor fracture, which is concerning for open globe injury. However, the sensitivity of CT overall for open globe injury ranges from 51 to 77%, and the specificity from 75 to 100% based on retrospective study data. Given the limited test characteristics of CT for identifying open globe injury, This modality should not be used in isolation to rule out open globe injury, though several findings may suggest the diagnosis. This is another one of those major points. That sensitivity of CT means that you can't exclude the diagnosis. One of my favorite tests for ocular issues is ultrasounds, but what do we need to know about ultrasound when it comes to an open globe injury? Ah, the controversial question for every diagnosis in emergency medicine. (laughs) The sensitivity of emergency clinician-performed point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, in evaluation of open globe injury might be higher than CT. A prospective cohort study of 232 patients found the sensitivity and specificity of POCUS for globe rupture was 100% and 99.7%, respectively. Those are way better stats than for CT, 
but the physicians in that study received more extensive didactic training and practice time than the typical emergency clinician prior to the study. In a prospective observational study conducted in a suburban community hospital affiliated with a residency program in the U.S. involving less preparatory training, the specificity of POCUS was still really good at 97.2% and sensitivity of 100% for ocular pathology throughout the entire cohort when comparing POCUS to thin-slice CT or an ophthalmology evaluation in the ED. In a porcine model, emergency medicine residents, years one through three, had an average accuracy of 89% in the detection of intraocular foreign body using POCUS, and accuracy increased by year of training, suggesting that more experience enhances degree of accuracy with the use of POCUS for detecting intraocular foreign body. The prospective studies and case reports that have evaluated the use of POCUS for globe rupture didn't demonstrate any adverse events but further data are required before this is utilized routinely for diagnosis, since these studies we talked about had small numbers of patients. If emergency clinicians perform POCUS to assess for open globe injury when physical exam findings alone are insufficient, they must use copious amounts of ultrasound gel and make sure to rest the hand firmly on the bridge of the nose so that no direct pressure is placed on the eye. Actually, pretty good numbers when it comes to ultrasound. You just need to be very careful here. Jess, let's pivot. What are the keys to managing a patient with an open globe injury? So the key components of ED management for open globe injury include consulting ophthalmology early, putting an eye shield over the eye to protect it from further damage, avoiding removal of any foreign bodies, making the patient NPO since they're probably going to go for surgery, treating pain and nausea to prevent Valsalva maneuver, since crying or vomiting can actually lead to extrusion of intraocular contents, which sounds terrible, updating tetanus status if needed, and administering broad-spectrum antibiotics. This includes vancomycin and a third or fourth generation cephalosporin, which we can substitute with a quinolone if the patient has a cephalosporin allergy. Antifungal coverage should be added in discussion with the ophthalmologist if the open globe injury involves dirt or if there's an intraocular foreign body present. Ophthalmology may proceed with intravitreal injection of amphotericin B or voriconazole given the lower risk of systemic side effects. Oral and intravitreal fluconazole have also been used for open globe injury, and oral fluconazole has fewer systemic side effects than the other antifungals we talked about with good penetration of the eye. So the definitive management of an open globe injury consists of broad spectrum antibiotics that can penetrate the globe and also surgical repair. Other than that time to definitive care, are there any other factors that can affect the prognosis for these patients? There sure are, Britt, and this is helpful to know for conversations with patients who are unfortunately suffering from this disease process. Blunt mechanism of injury, initial visual acuity of hand movements or worse, a relative APD, posterior wound location, metallic intraocular foreign body, associated injuries to the lids, lens, hyphema, retinal detachment, or vitreous hemorrhage, as well as endophthalmitis, are all associated with poor prognosis. Great stuff, Jess. I'm going to summarize what we have here. 
Open globe injury is a full thickness traumatic injury to the wall of the eye, usually the cornea or it could be the sclera. It's associated with severe morbidity and patients can experience endophthalmitis and lose their vision. This can be due to a blunt or penetrating mechanism. Poor visual acuity after the injury, an intraocular form body, a patient who is an older woman or a child, and delays to surgical intervention are all associated with worse prognosis. This can be a clinical diagnosis. Think about open globe injury in patients with painful vision loss, pupillary shape abnormalities where the pupil points to the site of the injury, and patients with a positive Seidel test. CT can be helpful for confirming the diagnosis of an open globe injury, but don't use it to definitively rule out the disease. Ultrasound does have high sensitivity and specificity for several findings, but it's still controversial. Management focuses on protecting the globe from extrusion of orbital contents with a protective shield and avoiding valsalva maneuvers, updating their tetanus status, giving them broad-spectrum antibiotics, and early surgical intervention by ophthalmology. Early diagnosis and management are the major keys to ensuring the best possible outcomes for the patient. Jess, great to have you here today. Thanks, Britt. I really enjoy this topic and appreciate you taking the time to chat about it with me. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. 